Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. What do you think you're good at? I'm good at doing my chores and helping around the house. Is there something you want to get better at? I want to learn about saving. Why do you want to get better at saving? So I know how to manage money and how it works for my future. How are you working toward getting better at saving? When I earn money, I set aside for saving or spending. Also, I can track how much is in each one. How does it feel to get better at something that you've been working on? Feels very exciting. Hi, I'm Hanuman Goldman. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Solomon. Hi there, I'm Daniel Goldman. You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. This is the first in a three-part series about achievement. Dan, as someone who has achieved quite a bit in your lifetime, what is your own early experiences with achievement? And how do you understand your achievements and your, your own journey of achievement and maybe even some of the things that you gained and sacrificed along the way? Well, it's interesting. I was just writing about my parents' generation. They were children of immigrants to the States, and uh, their parents were largely uneducated. And for that generation, children of immigrants, achieving in school and achieving in the professions was the road to success, was the road to financial security. And so each of them, my father, my mother, her brother, that entire generation, Uh, really drove themselves to achieve. And I think I got it osmotically in the family. So I just did it as a matter of course. I did well in school, got a PhD, went into the professions. uh, And then I had a huge success when I was around 50 with the book Emotional Intelligence. I look at that as kind of an accident. You know, there were thousands of books published that year. Why that became a huge success I couldn't have predicted. In fact, before the book came out, I thought I'd better write another proposal uh, so that I'll have some cushion uh, once people see how poorly this book does. So I was shocked and surprised. And then emotional intelligence became a whole basis of a career. I I left the New York Times. I was too busy giving talks. Uh, And I think Hanuman is my son, can give his point of view, but I think that I got too wrapped up in success and in achievement and spent, from my point of view, too little time with my family, with my kids while they were kids. I didn't enjoy them enough, I'd say. Uh, That was a downside. I also like that you're talking about how many books were published that year. And there's a 
sort of arbitrary nature to the success of emotional intelligence, you were able to get on Oprah for it. And I think Hillary Clinton was in a bookstore and pointed it out during a public event so that there were cameras there. And and all of these different moments added up to the conditions for success for that book. And there wasn't a massive uh, war that took the headlines that day, you know, like all of those things have to be in line. And that doesn't happen for everybody. In fact, that doesn't happen for most people. And so there's this like working hard, but also not being attached to the outcome. This is such an important conversation talking about achievement, because how do we reckon that with the presence of systemic racism or biases, et cetera? So it's not just that the culture at large is ready for the vision you're putting forth, but that the culture at large is willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, the credibility, the support, the social and financial capital that you need to achieve based on your identity. Yeah, some of us have some serious drags on our our achievement and our endeavors, what we look to achieve. So you could say the shadow side, the underside of achievement is blaming the victim, is not seeing how, for example, uh, privilege or luck plays into individual achievement and looking at it all as due to the person themselves rather than the system in which they're operating or living. Uh, which may, as you point out, Liz, have uh, implicit biases against them, stereotype them. It turns out, for example, that if you're anxious about how you'll do on a test, you'll do more poorly on the test. Well, bias against you and your group might make you anxious about the test. So in a way, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It also comes back to what you were saying earlier. That's a common experience that our personal goals and achieving our personal goals, specifically at work, come at the expense of the rest of our life. I mean, as as your son, I, I can attest that I would love to have spent more time with you when, when I was growing up. And, and that really does matter, you know, and happily we're healing. We're doing that healing now. But that's real and it it does come at an expense. And I mean, it's like, I can't tell you how many nights I'm sitting here, you know, at nine o'clock, having finally just, you know, got all the dishes into the dishwasher and finished the work day and the soccer practice drop off and the meals and all the things. And me and my partner look at each other and we're like, this is really an untenable and kind of ridiculous reality to be living, to be too parents who are who both want a family and are choosing to have a big family and who both have flourishing careers you know for many um middle class families in america that's the norm but the norm sounds like overwhelm to me this is the first in a three-part series about achievement this episode will focus on the theory of achievement we're talking today with ruth malloy Ruth Malloy is a very old friend of mine and a fellow psychologist. Uh, She, like I, was a student of David McClellan, one of the great psychologists of the last century. And his focus was on the motives that drive us, on what gets us up in the morning, what gets us going. He was particularly interested in achievement. Uh, He felt that being, for example, an outstanding entrepreneur Uh, depended on the degree to which you wanted to achieve your goals. Being an outstanding athlete, being on a sports team, it's a winning team, means that people need to embrace 
having a, a goal, getting achieving that goal. Uh, it's everywhere in the business world, in the sports world, in our private world. We're all pursuing goals, whether we think about it that way or not. Ruth has no illusions about achievement. She wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review called uh, Leadership Run Amuck, which was about people who are high achieving leaders, but who are pushing their people to get you know, quarterly results, and they don't really care how they get those results. And it burns people out. What Ruth said, and will say in the interview that really hit me was that people who are highly successful as an executive have achievement tempered by empathy. They care about the people they're leading. It's not just using those people to attain some goal. Ruth, I want to welcome you to our podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Dan. The topic of the day is the achieve competence, which is derivative of David McClellan's work and uh, which you know well, both through your own work on his motivational model, particularly you did work on social motives. Also, when you were back at Hay Group, you did an article, a co-author an article in Harvard Business Review on leadership run amok, which is about the achieved competence gone crazy. We're going to talk about that. And now, of course, you're the uh, leadership advisory consultant and global solutions leader for executive assessment at Spencer Stewart. So having said all that, let's just launch in. Ruth, the achievement motive which I talk about in terms of the achieved competence, describes someone who has very high standards, very high internal standards. Have you seen that in action? Oh, my gosh. It, it is rampant. Um, particularly, I work primarily with executives at the top of the house. And it is the signature competency. I would say at this point, more so than ever, over the past decade that, you know, if leaders don't have that confidence, they don't rise. It's a huge differentiator. Okay, good. So there's, there's a real plus side to this ability. And it also, there can be some drawbacks. Let's go into the pluses. One of the things that we've observed is that such leaders really seek out challenges. They don't take it easy. You know, they don't rely on a cash cow. They want to find the new thing that's going to take them forward. That's correct. One thing that McClellan talks about when we say motives is that the actual pursuit of the goal is intrinsically satisfying by itself. There, there is emotional drive and energy when the achievement motive is aroused. So you can almost think about it like a drug, it's addictive. Um, they're seeking out challenges, whether it's doing something that's never been done before, whether it's simply improving performance because they get frustrated by waste or efficiency, or um, you'll see it manifest itself in executives in terms of their own mastery or self-improvement. So often, you know, I do a lot of assessments with executives and a very common theme is just what is the next challenge? You get bored. You've mastered something. What's next? How do we raise the bar? I love your pointing out that 
people with this kind of drive seek out the challengers, work toward their goal for its own pleasure. It's not really the goal. It's the process. It's the push, the excitement of that. And one of the things that uh, seems to mark such people is they love metrics. They like to measure how they're doing. Yes, exactly. There are a few things like McClellan pointed out, which I love, is how do you arouse the achievement motive? Okay, because motives, you know, you can think of motives. We all have motives such as achievement. The others are affiliation and power or impact, you know, making a difference. But there are often conditions that leaders seek out that really arouse the motives. And one is a challenging task, the one that's not too easy or it's not fun. So that's why they're seeking it out, but also not overwhelming because it has to do with your abilities. Achievement is a very personal motive. It's individualistic. It's about mastery. So that's one thing. First of all, it has to be challenging. But as you said, Dan, it's about the metrics. Because if I don't know how I'm doing, it's not fun. I've got to get that feedback to know that I'm getting better or that I'm mastering something. You know, if you think about my son is upstairs in his room a lot now with the pandemic. And one of the things I find is he's on video games all day. And video games are almost designed to arouse the achievement motive. You know, they're, you're getting scores, right? You get tasks and they just kind of know what your competence level is, right? And there's a standard of excellence. So it's not just about doing things, but it's doing things better and, and seeing if you can get better at something. So they have all these things or these conditions in place. And um, unfortunately, he can play these all hours of the night, as I find out when I try to wake him up in the morning to go to school. I just was remembering another thing David pointed out, which is that he found that entrepreneurs particularly tend to have this achievement uh, ability to achieve motivation, and that they took what he called smart risks. That is, they knew what they were good at because they had gotten metrics, they had gotten feedback, and they might go ahead with a challenge or seeking a goal that other people thought was little crazy. They'll never be able to do that, but they knew they could. One way he measured this was with a ring toss. I don't know if you remember the ring oh, toss. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you, set, you set these pegs out and you have a ring and the further out you go, the bigger your score. And you have to decide where you can toss, basically. And the entrepreneurs tend to know what they could do. And people who were too shy about taking a risk, they're risk averse, they'd get a low score. People who were crazy about taking a risk would miss the big one. But the people with the achievement would pretty much get whatever they knew they could get. And that seems to say a lot about how they handle risks in general in life. Right. And I, I love the analogy of the ring toss is, is such a great symbol of the achievement, but they are, they are calculated. They really think through. Again, one of the things when you look at motives are almost conscious and non-conscious thoughts or concerns 
around doing things better. And people, when when the, they are high in the motive, will spend a lot of time thinking through all the scenarios and contingencies and have a good sense of their abilities so that when they do take risks, as you say, it may look um, big from the outside, but they are very thoughtful and calculated, which enables them to perform better. So as you said, more times they, they tend to do better on that than people who are lower in the motive. Well, that's a natural segue to the article you co-authored in the Harvard Business Review called Leadership Run Amok, one of my favorite articles. Can you reprise some of the key points there as it relates to achievement, achievement out of hand? Sure. Well, we did that article, my colleagues and I, probably 15 years ago. And I would say it continues to resonate today as I see it in my practice when I work with executives and, and organizations. What we found back at Hay Group, we actually directly measure the motive and had seen over time that the achievement motive had been increasing, particularly in executive populations. And there, there might be a reason why, you know, the emphasis on continuous improvement, um, short-term results, public companies, you know, there's, there's this need to deliver and um, the value of achievement has continued to rise. And achievement, as I said, there's a lot of good outcomes from high achievement, as we talked about entrepreneurism, innovation, um, a performance-oriented culture. However, <laughs> we've seen when it can easily get out of hand, and this happens at an individual level, with leaders in terms of how they impact their team. And you could think about how you could see a leader when their achievement motive gets aroused, kind of getting too into the weeds in terms of the work where they're not enabling the people below them to lead and do their jobs to the best that they can. Micromanaging is the term. It's a big thing with micromanaging, particularly you know, recent times with the pandemic and crisis and people are under stress, you're also seeing executives high in achievement, just setting almost overly ambitious goals, not necessarily for them, but for their teams where people get burnt out, overwhelmed. Um, it can cause chaos. There's a lack of alignment because what happens is the leadership style, the leader starts doing the work, doing the job of their employees, rather than helping um, provide vision, direction, support, and empowerment. Some of the best ways to keep people engaged is to arouse the achievement motive in your employees. And there are actually some very well-researched and clear conditions about how you can do this. So one is, is about the clarity, you know, creating a clear consequential goal that people can be excited about that is challenging to people, but also attainable. You know, think about how the vaccines got developed so quickly, right? There was a clear objective in mind about what needed to happen. 
And people were also clear, if you think about what leadership can do, it's not just about the goal about the big picture, but how does your role, kind of that role clarity, fit into that and contribute to that goal? So you're breaking it into something that's very manageable. Um, Another thing is ensuring that people have that freedom to do their job. So again, one of the things that's going to get in the way of feeling energized and satisfied in his work is that you feel like you don't have control, you know, and that's, I think a lot of that great resignation is that lack of control. You know, things keep coming to me. Um, I don't have accountability. I, I have to keep asking to get things done or I'm running into a lot of bureaucracy or rules and red tape. So, so it just gets so frustrating. Um, you know, it, it becomes very demotivating. The last piece is about getting feedback. You know, as a leader, one of the things that you can do is provide particularly the positive feedback. It's not just, you know, how am I doing in terms of the metrics, but getting recognition when you're doing a good job can go such a huge way, particularly coming from the leader that you are recognized genuinely, not, you know, sometimes leaders will say, thank you for all you do, you know, and, and, the cynical employee can say, do you really know what I do? <laughs> right? You have to keep an eye on that and see that. But if you can really create those conditions, which in a way are so manageable, work becomes fun for people again and satisfying. I think there, you know, there are a lot of other reasons. There's compensation or whatever. But, but if you have those conditions in place where really people feel challenged and are using their skills and abilities to their potential and are getting that opportunity to stretch and grow. If you're having fun, it gets hard to leave. So from what you're saying, I would gather uh, that you'd agree with the outlook that says a really good leader sets clear goals, but leaves people free to get there on their own. Exactly. So gives them the support, gives them the room to lead, and, you know, gives them the accountability to do their jobs without having to ask for permission all the time. That basically creates an environment that arouses the achievement motive in their people. And ironically, if you have a very high achievement, you're suppressing the achievement in your, in your own team. I think that's a really important point that many leaders may fail to understand because one, one pattern I've seen is that someone individually, as, as an individual contributor, may do very well because they have this very high internal standard, they're seeking feedback, they're constantly trying to improve performance, which is something we can get to. Uh, but they don't understand that when they become a leader, other things are required to. They become pace setters, which is, you know, do it the way I do it. And they don't understand that they need to create a connection to other people, the people they're leading, to have a team, a cohesive team. But there are many other things that a leader must do to balance too much achievement. Can you say what some of those things might be? Well, I think the first thing is recognizing when your achievement motive is getting aroused. I think it's the first thing. is If you go back to your model of emotional intelligence, self-awareness is critical with being able to to manage your own achievement motive. So you can create those standards of excellence and 
set goals for your team that are challenging and attainable. And when you go into autopilot, you know, that's often when things get in the way where you again start getting into the weeds and not doing the work. But it, but I think it's, it's that awareness and then finding other ways. Again, the achievement motive is intrinsically satisfying. And for many leaders, particularly today, because one of the reasons they were promoted or got where they are is because they are outstanding performers. It is because of that achievement motive. And the hardest thing as people move up as executives is giving up the work that they enjoy. Their work is no longer doing the tasks, but it's empowering and and requires and coaching and supporting. So finding other ways to satisfy that is very important. This reminds me of something uh, David McClellan talked about, which was socialized power, which is using your influence for the good of other people. Yeah, David talked about three social motives that account for probably the largest variety of behavior, whether it's at work, you know, you can see it at home, or even at an organizational society level. Those were the achievement motive, which is the topic today. But as you said, Dan, there's also the power motive and socialized power, meaning that people get satisfaction when they have a positive impact on others, that they leave others feeling stronger and more capable. And the power motive is an essential ingredient of good leadership. So it is being able to, as a leader, kind of manage your own achievement motive and start to get satisfaction from the role from helping and supporting and seeing a real high-performing team that you've built and getting satisfaction out of that. The third, by the way, is affiliation. I was just going to say affiliation, which is wanting to connect with other people, seems to be essential to teamwork. That is You know, when Google did their famous study of their top teams, they found psychological safety was a top characteristic. So if you're a leader and you want to have a top performing team, don't you need to connect to reach out to people to create a sense of trust and safety? Absolutely. It's core. And it's interesting looking at the history of the motivational research, because for a while, affiliation motive was sort of poo-pooed. You know, because sometimes if if you really cared about relationships, there was a risk that leaders would be reluctant to hold people accountable. So there could be some dysfunctional issues. But actually, and you know, we're seeing it more and more. It is so essential for building trust and creating an environment of psychological safety that truly brings out the best in people. So people feel that they can contribute. And that is about really learning and wanting to know and connect with people personally, not just for the work. And one of the hallmarks of the achieved competence is wanting to continually improve your performance. So there's a little bit of a paradox there because the person who is a high achieving once that person becomes a leader of a team, needs to understand that, oh, 
there's something else that I need to do, which is very different than just go for my goals. It's reach out to the other people on the team to connect, to create this sense of trust, safety, and belonging. That's right. And, and the hard part, the paradox is when your achievement motive gets aroused, and this is again where achievement run them up comes in, you put blinders on. It, it's again what makes you so good in terms of your own individual performance. You get laser focus on that task and you often will miss the social dynamics that are going on in the room. You know, you you think you're doing a good job and you don't think you're doing harm, but you, you can leave a lot of collateral damage in the way because you're not paying attention to that. So I think part of the work a leader has to do is to, in their minds, reframe the goal about performance, about being individual, but about performance of your team and kind of channeling that achievement motive more about empowering and connecting with people and building a strong team. This reminds me of the uh, unconscious level of all this also, where because um, I don't know if you know the work of Dacker Keltner at Berkeley, he talks about power relationships and attention. And he says in a dyad, the more powerful person pays less attention to the less powerful person, the less powerful person pays much more attention upward to the more powerful person. And this can mean, for example, on a Zoom meeting where you have your team by Zoom, that when the leader checks his or her phone, they're looking away from whoever is speaking. That sends a message to everyone on the Zoom that the leader doesn't really care about what this person is saying, which may be completely inadvertent, but it's a very powerful message. So... That suggests leaders need to pay much more attention. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I see this so much, you know, in, in our practice with executives about not being mindful, you know, particularly when they are high in achievement, about the symbolic impact that they have as a leader. Just by being in the role, you know, as you said, you are under a magnifying glass. And um, as you say, it, you know, when somebody looks at the phone, it can be so demoralizing or demotivating when, when a person is talking. Um, you know, the, the other thing I've seen um, with some leaders who, again, get involved in the task, you know, so, so as the team's solving the problem, they're, they're incredibly creative and bright and bring up ideas. And if they're not explicit, people take that as an order. So they may just be brainstorming or ripping, you know, while people are so busy in organizations today, um, it can create a lot of activity and swirl. Um, and this is another common thing we see sometimes with high achievement leaders, like you have to be really careful, you know, when you bring things up that, that okay, no, this is not something to work on or they get a great idea and then people can spend a tremendous amount of effort going sideways on ideas and then getting overwhelmed because there are too many priorities. Ruth, in, in your position now, it, it sounds as though you're assessing top leaders in global organizations. Do you see a general pattern and is achievement part of that pattern in the best leaders? Yes, 
I, I would say certainly when you get to the C-suite and CEO, almost 100% have that achievement confidence. It is probably the most defining characteristic of the top leaders, particularly in high growth companies. One of the things that enables the company to do so well is that they channel that achievement motive into the strategy. So they find, you know, things that look groundbreaking, but they're really trying to figure out in the market, we say that thoughtful, calculated risk, what is going to differentiate us? What is going to be unique? You know, so you see the innovation is often about figuring out the problem and then creating a breakthrough strategy that that gets them ahead of their competitors. And often, you know, there is a lot of skill. And if you've got a healthy power motive as well, that's socialized, you then spend a lot of your time communicating and selling that vision and enabling your team to kind of help execute the strategy and how to get there. But what happens is also under stress, <laughs> it can break down. So what are some of the other strengths that support this in a highly effective leader? I do feel there is good self-awareness. And I think the balance to what, what you were saying with what Vanessa talked about is that we at Spencer Stewart would call it caring, whether it's affiliation, but a real value around talent. And this is, you know, I would say the best leaders really understand it's not just all about the strategy and the results, but you have to do it through the people. And investing in getting a good team, you know, really high-performing team and enabling them to lead. You mentioned stress and, you know, these years have been extra stressful for everyone. How does that impact all of this? And what, what are the big buffers and what are the vulnerabilities here for a leader? Well, I think with the pandemic, um, you know, March 2020, everybody went into crisis mode, often on Zoom. So again, you have the barrier of trying to connect personally. So it often all becomes about tasks and problem solving. And leaders may rightfully so have to start pace setting or jump in or be very clear. You know, you have to have clarity in crisis, but it can be really hard to sustain. And I think that has been the biggest challenge for a number of CEOs who, you know, in normal times have done very well at managing the achievement motive. We've often seen this start to break down and how that kind of cascades through the organization is, you know, at the top team level, the leader starts getting into the weeds and pace setting. And in turn, that can create a lack of alignment because there may be communication that isn't happening or have been spoke or it's, you know, it gets into the firefighting mode. Okay, you go do this, you do, you know, we'll break it out into silos and, and then the organization starts bumping into itself. And, you know, two or three levels down is where you really start to feel strain. I think we've covered the main points I had in mind. Is there anything you would want to bring up? Or The only thing that I would leave with is 
in terms of coachable clients, people high in achievement are very coachable <laughs> because of almost achievement. They want to get better and self-improve. And, you know, as we wrote about 15 years ago in that article, Leadership Run Amok, when leaders kind of get that aha and start building that self-awareness, they can become tremendously effective and empowering leaders. And I think that's that's the positive piece here. You know, they can go from being very disempowering or causing burnout and chaos and stress. They can learn, but it it really is about that self-awareness. And uh, on that hopeful note, I want to thank you very much for joining me, Ruth. Oh, thank you for having me, Dan. Hey, Dan, thank you for doing this. How to let go of grudges? I love the question. I think part of the unpleasantness of holding a grudge is how it makes you feel. And if you can do something that makes you feel better, which is probably totally unrelated to the grudge, uh, that's a better way to spend your mental time than obsessing about the grudge. When the 25th anniversary edition of Emotional Intelligence came out, there was a review of it that was kind of, it was a total put down of the book itself. And I got angry and ashamed and anxious and all kinds of negative feelings. I don't know if I had a grudge against the author, but what helped me was actually some advice from a friend of mine who's a Tibetan Lama He said, uh, you know, just handshake all that, all the feelings. And what he meant was just be open to it, accept it, befriend it. And uh, the more I examined the feelings from a kind of neutral space, the more they kind of dissipated. And then eventually they disappeared. So that was very, very helpful. It it was don't deny the feeling. uh, Don't deny the grudge. But look at it and feel it and just be with it, but not react to it. And that was really good advice. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Do you have a question for Dan Goleman? He wants to hear from you. Go to firstpersonplural.com slash askdan. That's firstpersonplural.com slash askdan to record your question now. And while you're there, you can follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter to learn more about the podcast. Be sure to tune in next time. U.S. Olympic team psychologist Peter Haberl will talk about the challenges for high-achieving individuals at the Olympics. He shares how achievement shows up in team sports. Through these two lenses, we see achievement in systems. We care about supporting you on your EI journey and helping to bridge the gap between theory and application. That starts by better understanding you and the resources you're looking for. If this resonates with you, and if you have six minutes to spare, please take our Audience and Emotional Intelligence Insights Survey. You can find it at keystepmedia.com slash EI survey. That's keystepmedia.com slash EI survey. In recognition of your time, 
We're going to give you a free copy of the Leading with Empathy ebook. It's a collective guide that explores different applications and facets of empathy. This show was brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon. It's sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Kai, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Ruth Malloy. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Carrie Seed. Audio production by Michelle Zipkin. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Tiny Footsteps in the Snow by BioUnit, Norma by Mon Plaisir, and our theme music is by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.